Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the money machine that is better known as the NFL did it again. They sat down with their broadcast quote-unquote partners, negotiated new deals beginning in a couple of years, and they're going all the way to the bank. And that includes going digital in a big way with the Thursday night package. Let's break it all down. We can do that with uh, Neil Pilsen. He's a founder and president of Pilsen Communications, former president of CBS Sports. Neil, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with the Amazon aspect to this deal. Boy, it's the first time where you get a big digital player stepping up and getting a notable package, in this case, the Thursday night game. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, the other networks, the broadcast networks, didn't want it. They didn't have much interest in Thursday night. Uh, it was expensive. Uh, the schedule wasn't that good. They didn't need it. Uh, as long as they retain their Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, and Monday night schedules, uh, frankly, uh, the NFL uh, didn't have interest from, from those guys. So the digital component's understandable. Uh, predictable, but I think, frankly, the big story you missed. The big story is uh, the broadcast networks and ESPN reaffirmed their permanence uh, in broadcast sports for the next 11 years. I think everybody was predicting, you know, the demise of the networks, the end of linear television, uh, the networks are going to go away. Uh, No, uh, the networks are here to here for the next 11 years, uh, it's, that's the important story. Uh, I think the fact that uh, Thursday night went to digital is, is predictable. Uh, it represents about, uh, I think, 13 or 14 percent of the total financial pie. Uh, but the fact is that on just about every major sport where uh, there was broadcast television and digital television side by side, uh, digital never got over 5%. So, uh, you know, one day, yes, we probably will all be in the digital format. <clears throat> but uh, right now, the broadcast networks, I think, got to be very pleased with uh, their packages. Neil, I mean, to that, to your point, cable systems must be so happy about this because I can't think of any other reason I would – stay with an over-the-top box other than being able to get network sports. I mean, is that the only big, isn't that a huge big draw for cable? Sure. Uh, It is very important to them. The the cable folks have to be very pleased with the outcome of of the uh, NFL negotiations. No question about it. But even more pleased are the television station and the television networks, the uh, the broadcasters, uh, because I, I don't think the NFL is going to be the only uh, network to continue with broadcast television with its major major events. Uh, I can't see the NBA moving away. Uh, the NHL uh, just made a long-term deal with ESPN, which is more uh, in the broadcaster mode 
uh, they're actually a hybrid because they have ESPN Plus. But uh, ESPN is regarded as one of the traditional broadcasters. Uh, then you have Major League Baseball, which basically has long-term agreements with with the uh, with the broadcasters. Uh, so it's a it's a statement. The Olympics are long-term with the broadcasters. I'm running through in my mind the NCAA tournament is long-term with CBS and Turner. My point is that those in the media who predicted the end of linear television, they were wrong. It's continuing. Uh, It's going to have to share the spectrum and share audience with digital. But linear television, for the foreseeable future, and I think we're talking now about the next 10 years, is going to be a force. It, it's it's real. It's uh, it's not going away. Hey Neil, I, I want to talk to you about the economics of some of these rights deals. It just it, it astounds me here. Every time they come up for renewal, the, the fees seem to double. And I remember your former boss Mel Carmerson at CBS when they when CBS got its package back that it had lost uh, years ago. He famously said at an investor conference when asked about the profitability. We will make a dollar, is what he said, basically implying that's a break-even business. And obviously, uh, they look let at me sports. Explain it a little further. Okay, I was there when we lost the NFL. Yes, with Larry Tish back in 1994, uh, and I predicted to Larry that CBS would lose more money without the NFL than they might lose with the NFL. He didn't believe me. Well, it happened. Yep. And four years later, CBS came crawling back to the NFL (laughs) saying, basically, give us any package, name your price. We've got to get back with professional football. And they did. Uh, NBC went through the same discussion. Uh, Because NBC had a slightly stronger network, they lasted eight years without the NFL. Then they came crawling back. So uh, it's not the issue of whether you make any money or lose any money. The issue is, will you lose more money if you lose the NFL? And the answer to that is yes. And, and that explains the current deal. Is the, M- is the NFL completely dominant? I mean, we have, Neil, international listeners who maybe don't understand the importance of football, you know, American football in America. Well, the word is completely, and I think you used it. Yes, it is the dominant. Uh, you know, you look at the NFL ratings on a given weekend. If you include the pregame shows, and and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Saturday, uh, Thursday, Sunday, Monday, the NFL is getting seventy or eighty rating points every weekend. Uh, and no, no other entertainment property or sports property comes close to that. Uh, it, and it and it's steady. It's it's almost it it is guaranteed, uh, just about. So it is a totally unique property, unique to the USA. Uh, But, you know, you look at uh, World Cup ratings around the world. You look at the the ratings that uh, uh, the Premier League gets and the importance of European soccer. Well, this is our Premier League uh, by a, a larger margin than in Europe because there's so much more competition here. We have so many more professional and college sports programming in the U.S. compared to any other country in the world. And uh, the fact is, the NFL is the dominant by far. Is anything, Neil, is anything... sports property, entertainment property as well. Is anything 
do you see any big growth anywhere? I mean, I'm living over here, so I watch, you know, Formula One religiously. Everybody watches Premier League, but it doesn't seem to have picked up in the U.S. Is there anything that you see as a shooting star, as, as a big growth in terms of sports properties? Well, uh, first of all, is the, the major properties occupy a tremendous amount of attention, so it's very hard to kind of grow into that stature. But frankly, uh, international soccer is growing in the U.S. It is doing better. International soccer gets much better ratings nationally than MLS. Uh, that's not widely known, but MLS has very strong local interest. But so far, they have not cracked the national uh, ratings uh, uh, very well. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't see... Uh, any any new sport or any sport that currently exists growing to the point where it is comparable to, and not just NFL, but comparable to college football, which frankly is the second highest rated programming. Uh, and then we have nine or ten other pro- other sports. You know, we have NASCAR, we have the we have Major League Baseball, we have hockey, we have the NBA, we have college basketball. We have tennis and golf. No other network, no other country has that level right. of major sports that takes up so much audience. True. It almost prevents a new sport from from growing that quickly. It's true. It's true. I mean, Paul, you know, it, soccer is everything here, and there really isn't a, a, a second run. P- people yeah, don't I watch know. another sport the way they do in the U.S. Yeah. Hey, Neil, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Neil Pilsen, founder and president of Pilsen Communications. We had the diplomats from the U.S. and China uh, beginning a set of meetings uh, yesterday in Alaska, and apparently things did not uh, get off on the right foot. Let's see what that means for uh, future discussions and relations between the U.S. and China. There's absolutely nobody better that we like to talk to when we talk China than Leland Miller. He's the CEO of the China Beige Book International. Leland, what should we take away from kind of what we saw yesterday? It was a little bit unusual about how you know, aggressive the rhetoric was uh, on both sides. Yeah, I, I, I've got a real kick out of all the reporting from this because, uh, you know, the, the reporting says that it, this broke down into acrimony and that this was a tense exchange. You know, you know, look, both sides got exactly what they wanted out of this event. Now, you know, there was never a chance of a reset. There was never desire by at least the Biden side to really to, to move on the issues. Um, you know, this, is, this is the way that Track 2 Dialogues are typically done. So if, if, if for anyone who hasn't participated in them, you know, you have the U.S. on one side, and they sort of look sternly across the table <laughs> and saying, we are America, we love democracy, we love our allies, we love the rules-based order, you know, we are America. And then on the other side of the table, you've got the Chinese, who also have stern expressions, and they say, you know, we are China, we are strong, we also love democracy, we also love the rules-based order, but not your rules, we are strong, by the way, you are weak. You know, we are China. And, and this is how these things work on a regular basis. Now, they don't have to have open, you know, sharp tones, but th- this is sort of the back and forth. They're playing out for domestic audience on each side. So the fact that this didn't accomplish anything or was, was a, there was a lot of sort of loud pushback is exactly what should have been expected from this. There was never going to be a real accomplishment coming from this meeting other than the two sides coming at each other saying, okay, we're tough and we're not going to give in well, to you. 
Leland, the one accomplishment I thought they could achieve, and maybe they still will, is a meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping, or at least that was teased as a possibility on April 22nd. Do you think it'll happen? At some point, it'll happen. I, I don't. I don't see why the Biden team would want it sooner. But you know, look. On, on the one side, these are these are the two most powerful nations in the world. The two leaders getting together makes some sense. It's simply how you know what, what's the timing on this. If it does happen, I don't expect anything really to come of it, other than at some point in the first year, I do expect that they're going to reopen a consulate or two. They're going to let some journalists back into China, perhaps. Some, some, some goodwill gestures. But there's no desire right now on the U.S. side to make serious concessions or to get – they don't really need anything from, from, from Beijing. So there's no real desire for this, for this to be a priority right now. The big priority for Biden is to not look weak on China so that his administration doesn't you know, encounter problems in Congress dealing with its other priorities. So whether or not she and, and, and Biden meet in the near future, uh, which I wouldn't expect, but who knows, uh, I, I don't expect anything real to come of it uh, anytime soon. So, Leland, what is the China policy or what will be the China policy? What should be the China policy, do you think, of the Biden administration, um, again, towards China? Well, what they're what they're saying now, and it's it's other than, you know, we're reviewing everything, is that we're going to keep most elements of the Trump tough on China policy in place. But we're going to adapt it over time to our mindset, which is we need to but more priority on consensus and bringing in allies, et cetera. Now, the problem with that is uh, it's a process, not a strategy. So, yes, it, it makes a lot of sense to do that, but then where do you go with this? And they don't know yet, and I think that there's some big questions coming up with Taiwan, how, we're gonna, how, how the United States is going to handle, handle uh, uh, relations with Taiwan, and, and, and certainly the tech companies is a big one. Uh, and then, of course, the Xinjiang situation is hanging over everything because China's hosting the Olympics next year, and so there'll be a lot of pressure to back out of that. So a lot of big decisions are coming out of, out of you know, are to come out in, in future months, but they don't have a set policy on this yet. Right now, the message is we're dealing with COVID. We're getting to that later. Leland, I've watched the car industry and a couple of things necessary to build a good EV, rare earths and chips are seemingly controlled by China, or at least, you know, a large portion of that industry is. Will we move it back to the U.S. or will we make a deal? How's that get uh, uh, worked out? Yeah, I think two two issues with semiconductors, and and look, there is nothing more important than semiconductors and the semiconductor discussion right now. But I think two issues are being conflated, and the first is we've got a global semiconductor shortage, and that's due to a lot of dynamics. There are supply dynamics, uh, supply chain dynamics breaking down in COVID. There's some bad decisions by companies like car companies on the demand side not to order more. Uh, you've got some U.S.-China trade stuff that's interfering. So you've got a, you've got a global semiconductor shortage, and that's going to hit GDP, and that's hurting companies. And so there's just sort of a panic coming out from, from, from different industries to do something about it. Separate from that is you at the you know is U.S.-China competition at the very top of the food chain, which is you know uh, seven nanometer chip, fourteen nanometer chips, seven, five, three, going on to two in the future. And right now, there's only there are very few companies that can produce this. Essentially, Taiwan Semiconductor is the company producing this, and the U.S. is ring fencing their production from going to China. So there's a big debate. You know, are we too reliant on Taiwan Semiconductor? Should the U.S. have other alternatives? 
yes, this is very important to discuss, but it's totally different from the global semiconductor shortage that we're seeing right now across that's affecting markets and GDP. But people in industry right now see subsidy dollars and they're like, well, well let's just talk about panic and, and everything's anti-China. So let's, let's get some more money for industry. The strategy's not crafted out in a way where, where it looks like this thing is being done in a, in a way to, to really craft out an intelligent strategy on advanced chip manufacturing. Leland, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight. Always fun talking to you as well. Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International. All right, so Paul was just talking about uh, FedEx. They had surging package volumes and price gains. Those two things offset increased labor costs. But, you know, for the economy, increased labor costs are good, too. Let's bring in um, right now Christina Hooper. She's the chief global market strategist for Invesco. Christina, is this, you know, one of the telltale signs of an economy that is booming? Well, certainly it is. And that's what we should be expecting. Uh, We are seeing um, what is likely to be a very robust and inclusive economic recovery uh, in 2021. And this is just part of of that kind of of robust recovery. Hang on. on. When you say inclusive, explain that, because that's definitely a buzzword these days. Is it really going to uh, are we going to see women come back in the labor force? Are we going to see people of color come back in the labor force and get pay raises? Well, I certainly think we're going to see a more re-entering the labor force. So when I say inclusive, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about this being um, what I would term a job full recover- recovery as opposed to a job less recovery, which is what we saw for a number of years following the global financial crisis. I think this is going to be different because we have more fiscal stimulus um, that, that has been provided. And because of the nature of this recovery, this is not a confidence game. Uh, We're not trying to rebuild confidence. We're not going to have a slow recovery. This is a situation where um, once we get uh, enough vaccines uh, in people, um, we are going to get closer to herd immunity and it's going to be off to the races. It's going to be much more like a switch turning on. Christina, what did you make of Fed Chairman Powell and his comments uh, earlier this week? He seemed to suggest that uh, the Fed is still lower for longer. Uh, What did you take away? So my takeaway is that um, he, the Fed really means what it says in terms of the policy framework changing and that they're really abandoning uh, this concept of preemptive tightening. That's really, really important because that means they are going to let this economy run uh, because And if they do see some kind of increase in inflation this year, they're going to be most uh, most predisposed to treat it as transitory and sit on their hands. Uh, So this is this is very exciting. It's a big departure from the past. And so I think it's a positive for the economy. Now, of course, it can be a double edged sword for markets because markets are worrying about a rise in inflation. And of course, that's causing uh, or one of the reasons why we're seeing that rise in in Treasury yield. But markets are only worried about a rise in inflation or mainly worried about a rise in inflation because they think that will move the Fed to raise rates, thus killing the recovery. Right. So if you take the Fed at its word that um, they're going to let the economy run hot because they believe it's only transitory, then you can assume that they're not going to raise rates, even if we see it. Right. 
that's part of it. This is almost a chicken and egg conversation, right? Because uh, fear of inflation does have an impact on the 10-year yield. And so there are concerns that if the Fed is not willing uh, to control uh, the yield curve, uh, further out that that is going to present problems in and of itself, even if it keeps the Fed funds rate where it is. Uh, so that can be a bit problematic, uh, especially for the stock market, right? And that's what we're seeing on days like uh, today and, and what we saw yesterday. All right, Christina. So given what we have with this backdrop, uh, what we heard from Fair, uh, Chairman Powell, uh, the expectations on inflation, um, how are you guys at Invesco where are you looking for opportunities right now? So, um, first of all, um, it is still an environment that favors risk assets, especially if you have a longer time horizon. But even if you have a shorter time horizon this year, I think we are going to see stocks outperform other asset classes. But they're going to do that with significantly more volatility. That's just the nature of this recovery. We made huge gains uh, in the last year. Uh, and now we're going to be coming up against a few headwinds. I think it's more a matter of digestion uh, that that at each new level that we hit with the 10-year yield, that there is going to be a period of digestion. But I still think uh, that this is going to be a positive year for stocks. Uh, we're likely to see cyclicals, the more value side of the stock market, outperform growth this year. But that doesn't mean to abandon growth. I think you still want exposure there. And again, uh, this is going to be a year that underscores the importance of diversification to really smooth out that volatility. We need to have exposure to a variety of asset classes. Are you, I mean, this conversation is focused on U.S. assets, I guess, but European stocks have also done well and um, analysts like European stocks, but we don't have vaccines getting into arms the same way. Is that going to be a problem? Well, I certainly think that's going to slow down the timeline for an economic recovery in Europe. Uh, also, the effectiveness of, of the vaccines being used in Europe may play a role as well. Um, but uh, if you're a long-term investor, that's not really that important. Uh, the timeline can shift a little bit. It can be delayed a little bit. Um, it's more about valuations. Uh, it's more about uh, longer-term prospects. And so I would say this is an environment where valuations look very attractive in Europe, but they also look attractive in Asia, especially Asia EM. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so that's an area as well to be looking at. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, getting your views on the markets on a global scale. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. They have $1.3 trillion with a T in assets under management. They're located in Atlanta. Let's talk a little bit more about vaccines right now. This is not just because I'm angry or bitter that um, the place I live <laughs> is so slow. Well, you know what? I think the word inefficient is a great word to use when talking about Germany's vaccine delivery. And the same can be true, uh, can be said, I should say, about um, other European countries. Therese Raphael joins us to talk about why even Switzerland has really dropped the ball compared with the efficiency of states like West Virginia. Um, Therese, normally we think of Germanic people as super efficient. I guess that's just not true. Well, in this case, it seems not to be. And that's, um, you know, with 
for me, the most surprising finding when I began to question whether the problem was really all about supply, because, right, the narrative has been that um, the countries that produce the vaccines and manufacturers, they're fine in vaccinating their people, um, but, um, but, but other places are starved of supply and therefore can't roll out the vaccine. But when you drill down a little bit deeper, it's not just the supply issue. Obviously, supply is hugely important, but some of the most vaunted healthcare systems in the world uh, fall down on delivery. And that's for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones I found was um, a lack of uh, you know, basic electronic health records, which you know, the World Health Organization has been pushing for a long time, and only about half of developed countries have it. But the places that have really good digitized systems, which enable them to to get the message out, uh, to, to have an efficient booking system, to track who's been vaccinated. Those were places that were able to um, vaccine at a higher rate. And there were other factors as well, such as whether they were able to use kind of traditional um, uh, pathways for delivering health care, such as in the UK with the National Health Service or in Israel with the health maintenance organizations. Trez, one of the issues that uh, we're finding here in the United States is uh, reluctance uh, from some people, sizable uh, percentages of the population, to get vaccines, uh, sometimes uh, labeled as anti-vaxxers. Is that a big issue across Europe? Does it vary country to country? What, what are they finding? It definitely varies from country to country. So in the UK, um, we found a really strong, robust uptake of the vaccine. Now, it's trailing off just a little bit as they get down through the age group. So they're now looking at vaccinating uh, the under 50s. And uh, just this week, we're hearing that some people are not making their appointments. Younger people are feeling not quite as vulnerable to the virus and, and may not be as eager for the vaccine. Uh, France has had a much bigger problem. And, you know, that's that's a longstanding issue um, and France. And, and it's one the government has just been really poor at trying to counter and is now trying to make up lost ground. But, you know, again, if you were to rank the problems of vaccination rollout, you'd put supply first, but then you'd put delivery systems and then maybe you'd put vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaxxers at the very bottom. Why doesn't somebody in charge here just say, send them out when we get the supplies in to all, uh, you know, Drugstores, pharmacies, vets, uh, nail salons, why not just get them everywhere? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And every country has is doing it differently. And in many countries, you know, Germany uh, with the lender, Switzerland with the cantons, America with the states. So in the U.S., for example, the federal government has done a really good job of sending out supply to the different states. But then it's left it up to the states and the localities to decide what to do. And they have adopted a whole mishmash of uh, different systems. So, you know, someone was telling me that in a suburb of Chicago, there are three or four different websites to register for the vaccine and sometimes you couldn't get an appointment or you'd have to try different websites they all use different systems uh, you have some towns that are vaccinating out of town commuters but not the elderly who live in the town so there's you know it is this is a huge logistical operation and for healthcare systems and local authorities that aren't good at logistics or have never confronted something on this scale they're falling down Trez, you know, before the pandemic, uh, we used to talk to you almost on a daily basis about Brexit, and you would help us uh, improve our understanding of what's going on there. Is the pace of rollout in the UK versus the EU being seen as, in the UK as a referendum on Brexit? Hey, we'd made the right decision. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that it has, you know, reinforced Boris Johnson's message that Britain can do it better alone. Now, that may not be the case at all, because the UK uh, could have approved the vaccines on its own without the EU. It could have ordered its own supply. But the reality is um, that, that, that that's the that's where the, the optics are. But it and, does show you the, the difference, right, between... How Brits operate and how Europeans operate. Europeans prefer to take a heck of a long time doing things. They like to have tons of bureaucracy that makes it almost impossible to act, whereas Brits just get down to it and solve the problem. Well, the thing they did right here is the government realized that they had to take it out of government, and they put a private sector venture capitalist with a uh, you know, pharmacy of a bio background in charge of a task force who identified the ta- vaccines, did the deals with the companies, and they recognized that, they, that the rollout had to be through the NHS, which is very good at this. It has the electronic health records, and they get the military involved, and that just worked. Now, if you know, we go back and talk to the PPE crisis or the handling of the pandemic up to this point, it's really a different story, isn't it? But when it comes to um, you know, being able to innovate on this, you know, on, on this particular front, Britain was just way out ahead. And, uh, you know, they deserve to be <laughs> taking the credit that they're very happily, you know, happily eating up right now. It, Therese, is the expect- expectation that things are going to improve here? And over what time frame? I mean, are there are things improving across um, the EU in terms of getting shots in arms? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the big supply crisis is is you know is that um, you know is that damning for the EU right now. I think that we're, you're going to see a lot more supply coming in, and that the target um, I think of seventy uh, percent of the adult population by the end of July. I mean, that's uh, that's that's pretty much achievable. So um, you know, I think we are going to see things getting a lot better. And of course, we also have um, the seasonal effect on our side. But there's no question that Britain will be way out ahead and that that's going to affect travel and all sorts of other things, in addition to, you know, the political uh, knock-on effects that, that you just mentioned. And the U.S. Is, is ramping up quite rapidly as well, not because it's got great delivery systems, although some states like West Virginia that I wrote about do, but because it's got um, tremendous manufacturing um, power when it comes to, you know, producing these vaccines. Hey, Therese, thanks so much for joining us. We love uh, chatting with you. Great column here today, uh, you know, kind of comparing a couple places you wouldn't necessarily compare uh, Switzerland and West Virginia as it relates to vaccine rollout. Well, because Again, Switzerland Matt, is so rich, right? And for those yeah. who don't live in the U.S., West Virginia is a very poor state so it's yeah. um the contrast is amazing yeah it is and uh again uh we'll have to keep a track of how that's developing in europe red headline crossing the bloomberg terminal the cdc says schools can allow three feet of distance in classroom down from six feet so hopefully that will accelerate the reopening of schools across the u.s thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.